Hello, friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. Great to have you with us and uh, really excited about today's guest. Um, We have podcaster extraordinaire, author, uh, pastor, speaker, Luke Norsworthy here joining us from the the grand old state of Texas. Luke, what's going on, man? Hey, uh, Stephen, Andrew, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to be here. And uh, we're we're excited to have you. For those of you who don't know Luke personally, but have listened to the podcast, you, you've heard us name drop um, Luke many many times. Um, I, I I don't remember Luke the exact year. I probably should have gone back. But um, we've been listening. Stephen and I both were we're turned I on. Started the first year, man. I was I was I was listening to you before you were cool. Just so you know, oh, the earth, like year one, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, what year how did was you, that? I found you. It was. It would have been. Uh, well, you didn't have very many episodes on yet, and you still—you definitely still had your old profile picture on there. Which, thanks for changing that. That was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Wait, That's what fair. year did you start, Luke? I really don't know. The, I've, four years ago. Does four? that sound right? Yeah, yeah. Is it maybe five? Graduated college, and you—you you just had on. Oh, here it was. So I think you were—you had Richard Beck on to talk about this is his slavery of uh, no, unclean, no unclean slavery of death, mm-hmm. unclean, and then later slavery of death. So like unclean came out. Probably five or six years ago, four or five years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I should know this. At 300 plus episodes, if you do 50 a year or well, maybe 60 a year, that's five years. I don't know. It's It's been a few years. It's Someone can lot. look that up. I'm yeah. not, I, I didn't realize math was involved in this podcast. It Sorry. is. Yeah, this is the Mathematician's Podcast. But it's the Newsworthy with Norsworthy Podcast. And of course, we'll we'll link it uh, below. But yeah, man, we can say, and because you're Church of Christ, I can let our listeners know with absolute certainty that, you know, all the content is approved <laughs> um, unilaterally. Uh, but, but Luke, give us a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe your own version of an intro kind of to yourself and would love to dive in in a minute to, to your new book, which is called God over good. Um, but maybe in, in describing kind of introing yourself, you can also give our listeners a little taste of kind of where, where that, where the podcast came from and, and maybe yeah. even an, into the inception of the book. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the podcast started, because actually I was reading Richard Beck's book, The Authenticity of Faith, which is his probably most overlooked book that he's written. Mm. But I found the first half of that book to be one of the most compelling uh, pieces of literature I have read in the theological sphere that most people don't know about. And so I read this. And so Richard Beck was a student of my father's when he was first taking psychology. And so my dad's office and uh, Beck's office were right next door to each other in Abilene Christian University psychology department. And so I knew who Richard Beck was, like I would say hi to him, but I didn't really like know him well enough to say, hey, let's go get coffee. And I want to like talk about some of these things you wrote about because I got questions. And I thought, well, if I just had a podcast, if I had a microphone, then maybe I could get him to talk to me. And that's really where the podcast came from. Like I had these, I had questions that I wanted to ask people who seemed to be people who like were helping me make sense of my faith. And Richard Beck obviously was one of them. And there are a handful of other people from, you know, the NT Wrights to the Barbara Brown Taylors to the Richard Roars to the, I, don't know, I mean, Eugene Peterson to Rob Bell. Um, I mean, like all the, like the Hillsong people, like these people all were playing a role in my life. And I wanted a chance to learn from them. And I mean, that's literally where the podcast started. And I, at, at that time, I didn't think I'm going to become an author. I'm going to need a platform so I can get a book deal. It was just, hey, I've got these questions that I would love for these people that I deeply respect and looked up to, to give me a few minutes to try to give me some answers. Mm. That's awesome, man. And what have you noticed? Just curious, last fun question for me. Um, 
or an answer for, for me. What have you observed about sort of the landscape of the, like how many Christian podcasts, including ours, maybe have emerged over the last like four years? How has the discussion shifted or evolved, um, you know, in the four or five years you've been doing it? Macro well, level. There, there, there really weren't a lot or any when I started. There was probably the homebrewed Christianity podcast and then there's the relevant, relevant podcast. And it's besides that, there weren't really a whole lot of others. I, I, I think of... I mean, a long list of people who were guests of mine who have since gone on and started their own podcast and people that uh, once there was a, a well-known author who I had to explain to her what a podcast was, how it was going to work. And like, Hey, I'm like, I'm, I'm for you. Like, I'm trying to like promote your work. She's, okay. Well, tell me how's this going to work and what are you going to do? Um, and I, once I, the first time I interviewed Rob Bell, I got a call from the senior publicist at Harper One, which is where Rob does all of his writing and kind of like, like to grill me to see like, what are you doing? Where are you coming from? And just because it was like so new, people didn't understand how it worked and not, right. not said Harper One didn't understand that, you know, Rob comes with his own, his own set of questions that people want to like kind of come up and they want to decide, are you going to, uh, what is this? Who is the guy who got him on MSNBC? Nathan Bashir. Oh, God. Anyway, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, like, it so was you're going like, to corner him and grill him and yeah, it's going to yeah, go yeah, viral. Yeah. And so maybe that's more what like the publicist at Harper One was doing. But for the most part, most people didn't know what it was. And now like there's just a plethora of them. And so one of the things that I noticed when, when I first started podcasting, if I get you know, Tom Wright on, if I get Richard Rohr on, if I get Rob on, there's going to be this huge spike in my listeners because people are like, well, I want to hear, you know, Rob Bell have this casual conversation. Or I listen to NC Wright talking to some pastor from Texas because I, I don't get that opportunity. And so there's these huge peaks because people didn't have the opportunity to hear these people on a, like a normal, you know, conversational-ish format. And now they're just ubiquitous. They're they're all over the place. So I don't get big spikes when I have a big guest in the same way that I used to because mm. if you want to hear Richard Rohr or, or you know Tom Wright or Barbara Brown Taylor, there are plenty of podcasts that you can find. And so now it's um it, it's different. It's far easier to get guests, but the um the novelty of it definitely is worn off to some yeah. degree. Well, including Rob's podcast, by the way. Um yeah. like he has the one dark- too. <laughs> yeah, the the daughter cast. I, yeah, um, yeah. That there's a. I, I did a podcast with uh, Beck and Rob Bell in Laguna Beach back when Rob used to live down there, and it was one of the like one of the coolest podcasts awesome. I've like I've ever done. And uh, yeah, anyway, he he might have made a reference to my podcast as part of the origin story, which I didn't hear him when he was talking to Oprah say that, <laughs> but I have it on audio that he said it to me. So nice. even if Oprah didn't hear that. I've got it recorded. Somewhere. Yeah, well, it's we'll on get the it internet. Out to, to the royalties must be nice. I'm sure that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. The zero. For some reason, Rob doesn't do ads on his, which I can only imagine how much money he could make off that. But for some reason, there's no royalties that Rob's getting off the podcast, which is just a dumb decision. But you know what? Love wins. So, so that's all you need is love. <laughs> <laughs> let's. Uh, that's awesome. Let, let's transition to the book, Luke. So, so we got to read this book, um, "Got Over Good," which came over came out in October. And let me give the sub subtitle here. So it's "God Over Good: Saving Your Faith by Losing Your Expectations of God." Um, what? Where did this book come from? Kind of personally, you obviously it's a lot of your personal story of of, of faith and your faith journey. But w- w- why now? Um, and why 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 here? And and last thing, why God over good? Why did you decide to to make that your title? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, why the book? 
it originally started as I was just writing. I started not wanting to be a published author, but I wanted to become a writer. And so I would write 500 words every day. And it started with, I was writing fiction and like that was its own train wreck in itself. But then I said, you know what? I probably need to stick to nonfiction. And then it became like this exercise that I'm trying to make sense of my own faith. And so I'm writing these things down. I'm writing ideas, trying to make sense of, of like the big questions of suffering and Bible and, and who God is and how does intimacy with God work. And a lot of it was connected to the subject matter of the podcast. And the, the book becomes kind of like, this is me processing and making sense of my own story. And then eventually I was like, well, I guess maybe I should try to like get this thing published. And so it, like the podcast, like the podcast started because I had questions and it became something and, and I'm like, that's great, but it wasn't ever the goal. And when I started writing, what is in that little red book that you have is like, I'm glad it became a book, but it it originally was, Hey, this is me making sense of my own journey. And the fact that, you know, a a publisher decided they're going to give me money to turn it into that. I mean, that's pretty great. But again, it's, it's my own curiosity. I'm trying to make sense of things for myself. And why, why God over good as a title? I found it compelling. Oh, uh, the title. Well, I think, for me, I have expectations of what good is like a sacred text should, should be the certain thing. Um, God's involvement in the world should be a certain thing. If God is, you know, all powerful then suffering should be, you know, eliminated from the human experience. If, if, you know, God is this loving parental figure, then intimacy with God should be easy since that's what it's like with my, you know, with my parents, Mm -hmm. but that's not how God always looks. And if you want God to live up to your expectation, you're probably going to end up being disappointed because God doesn't always live up to your subjective definition of what good is. And so I think the way for me to save my faith was moving past my own definition of what a good sacred text should be, uh, a good God should be, but was moving to receive what God actually is and learning to, to let go of what I was holding on to so I can receive what actually is. So, but don't you think that as far as expecting things from God, I mean, if we, if Christians, you know, we claim that God is love and God is, uh, you know, powerful and, 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 and all that, how, isn't it reasonable to have some ex- expectations that, that, that <laughs> yeah. what God would, would do would be consistent with that? Yeah. I, look, I think there's a, a difference between having hopes of what God has promised God to be and expectations of what I think God should be. Uh, Cause a lot of times at the bottom of the contract that I create for what God should be, I look down at the bottom and I realize there's only one signature on there and it's only my own. And I, and I think that's different nice. from like a hope that we can have in God that, that, that God says, I'm going to redeem all things or, or, or Jesus says, I am God in the flesh. I think that's a hope that we can hold on to because it's not my expectations. I haven't uh, put that upon God. I think God has revealed that to us. Same thing with scripture. I think scripture says it's useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking. It's inspired. Like, I think that's a hope that we can have of what scripture is. Now, when we start adding other things on top of that, like, I think that's when we get in in a problematic situation because that's our own expectations that we're juxtaposing upon God or our sacred text. Hmm. Where, Where do you think those expectations come from? I think they come from everywhere from your daddy issues to the culture you grew up in to, I I think expectations appear like stains on a white couch. Like they're just there. You don't always know where they came from. I mean, your expectation for God could be more influenced by Morgan Freeman because we all know Morgan Freeman is the voice of God. than it actually is by say like John's gospel, right? Like it it depends on like what you've been around, what you've experienced. Uh, So it's a cornucopia of things that do it. But 
they're all there and we, we all have our own special expectations we bring to the table. Yeah. What were some of, so early on, you do a great job kind of going back in your, in your life in the book and what were in your early career as like, as a pastor coming out of seminary, like what were some of those, you know, early phase expectations that like, like definitively, these are the kind of things that I was expecting. And when did the breach you know, kind of start to happen? When did that start? When did those expectations start, uh, you know, not no longer being met and become problematic? Uh, when I was in grad school, I took this intro to Old Testament class and I, I was, uh, you know, tw- 21 at the time. I've been preaching for a couple of years, had an undergrad degree in Bible, uh, was a preacher, little country church, had a couple internships under my belt. And I really felt as a 21 year old grad student, like I had ministry figured out, like I, if I today could muster up like one tenth of the confidence I had back then, <laughs> that would be amazing. Cause I'm not even there right now, but I had it all figured out. And then I take this, uh, take this class. And I remember walking out of my final going, uh, like, I don't know anything about the Bible and how it's supposed to work. And so that was like the, the, t- like the, the first point when like the water started to like to seep in and, and I started to r- realize that there was a crack in this faith of mine, but it really wasn't just one thing. It was, it was a composite of a bunch of things. Uh, so there's a, a guy who I reference in the book called, uh, I call him pen pal, Paul. He's been on the podcast, my podcast a few times. His name's Paul Nevison. And, uh, he, he used to be a worship leader and like a, um, a big wig at Hillsong down in Australia. And now he's an independent filmmaker and, he, he's working this film for, uh, like this terrible story called the, the, the Bali nine. Uh, it's, fascinating story. One day it's going to be a feature film, but he's telling me he's working on this, the story and he's got a bunch of characters that help move the, uh, the narrative along, but he can't work every individual character into the movie just because of time constraints. And so what they do is what's called a composite character where they kind of bring a bunch of different elements that in like actual people do in the story. But for the sake of the narrative, they, they turn into like one character who does it all. So they call it this composite character. And in some way, like to say that there's like one moment that had the floodgates open up and all of a sudden I had these doubts and questions would really be like this composite like moment of my my life. Because it was not just one thing. It was uh, the compilation of all these things. It was the intellectual issues that presented in grad school. It was the train wreck of my first job. It was the divorce that changed my family. It was my mom's um uh, chronic illness that at the time never seemed to be get getting any better. Uh, so, so it was a bunch of things that like all came, came together. So it, to, to say it's like just an intellectual issue, I think would, would undermine my humanity and maybe the humanity of most, most of us, because that's, we can't divorce our experiences from our understanding of who God is. It's like, it, it's all intertwined. So you, uh, you you mentioned in your book that that belief is is not a noun that we possess, but it's a verb that we participate in. Can you can you walk us through what it means to participate in in belief or to have faith when all the things that that you used to be certain of and, and what what does what does the author of Hebrews says? He says that you know faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Um, so when that when that feels like it's no longer your faith is no longer feels certain. What does it mean to actually participate in belief? Yeah, I think the difference of belief as a noun versus a verb, which in John's gospel, belief is a verb, right? I think there's a there's a source in there actually in my book where I reference a commentator who makes that point. So it's not my original idea, unfortunately. Sorry. Um, but belief when it's a noun, it's like um, 
Like I believe so. I love Chipotle. Big fan of Chipotle. I don't know if you guys like that down in Georgia, but I do. I love Chipotle. Uh, give me one of those salads, extra chicken, guacamole. Like I'm, I'm good to go. Like I love that stuff. Now there's two ways to do belief with Chipotle. So one is I'm not really sure where the Chipotle is nearby, but I could say like, I believe it's just down the road, like through two intersections. It's on your left. I believe it's down there. That's me not having all the information about Chipotle in my head. And so I'm going to use belief as a term to kind of fill the intellectual gaps that I have. And so that's my belief about Chipotle. That's belief as a noun. Uh, belief as a verb is I believe that Chipotle is the future of these fast service restaurants, quick serve restaurant, whatever you want to call them. And so I'm going to mortgage my house. I'm going to sell my truck and I'm going to buy into the franchise and I'm going to invest myself in the future of Chipotle by opening my own local franchise. And that is belief as a verb because I'm putting my entirety into this. My way of life is connected to Chipotle. I, I think both of those are accurate uses of the word believe because belief can mean two different things. One is like ideas and other is like, this is who I am. This is my anchoring uh, point. This is like the, the North star that guides me where I'm going. And, and that's what I would argue belief is truly about. It's not about having every intellectual crevice filled up, but it's about the, the direction and the anchoring point of your soul. So, so how do you, when you come from a tradition where belief is the former, Mm -hmm. Right. Where it's like, no, it is, it's the anchor because, and we can be certain, and this is, you know, this is locked and loaded, like, and that's where you get your confidence from, you know, mm -hmm. always be prepared to give an answer, right? Like yep. first Peter, when you're coming from that framework and maybe your community of faith doesn't, there's no, no, no space for that or those kind of people. And I imagine you run into these people a lot, maybe even in pastoring. What, what do you say to that person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that definitely in uh, some of the the history of my tradition, where belief literally was just you have to have all the right answers and you have to be always prepared to, like you say, uh, to give uh, an account for the rationale for your faith. Um, like I would hope to point them to the story of Jesus. Like Jesus is the centerpiece of my faith, and I think Jesus kind of taught and embodied this sort of way of being faithful to God in the world. And so I like that, that I, like that's kind of a Sunday school answer, but that's what I would do. Like I would point at the gospels because I think there's this, there's a story of the disciples where uh, the disciples are offended because Jesus has taught, like, if you don't you know, eat my flesh, then, then you're not with me. And so the crowd starts to leave. Then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, do you want to leave too? And Peter's response was, uh, where else can we go? Because only you have eternal life. Yeah. And so there, there are times in faith that like the ideas don't make sense to you. Like they're offensive, they're problematic. But if you, if you've anchored yourself, if you found life in the person of Jesus and in, in, the, in faith, then e even when things don't add up and even when things are, are perplexing or problematic to you and you want to walk away, you stay because you found, you found life in Jesus. Mm. Yeah. It, it seems to me like sometimes our expectations of God are kind of the byproducts of our framework for understanding God. Mm -hmm. So when God is like this timeless, eternal, unchanging, um, you know, you know, being, then, then when we, and, and the Bible is his word, well, we would expect not to find contradictions or uh, mm -hmm. things like that. So I'm curious for you as, as, as you started writing the book or whatever led you to write the book, how did your understandings of God begin to shift as you were beginning to let go of your expectations of him? Hmm. Uh, for me, I, 
my expectations left when my faith was falling apart. And so it wasn't so much like I was just making this like, Hey, I'm setting this dove free so it can go be into the world. It was more like it had been ripped <laughs> out of my hands. And like this dove was like, I, I'm gone. You can hold on to me all you want, but it's not there anymore. And so I could reach for it and try to grab it, but like I, I couldn't get a hold of it. And so it was moving from like grasping at something that I could hold on to, to receiving to what was in front of me. And like I couldn't, I couldn't make God fit God's sacred text of scripture, our Christian tradition, like our Christian text. I couldn't make God make that fit into what I think a text should be. Like, I don't think there should be contradictions. I don't think that there should be accounts in which things are different. I don't think in, you know, the book of Acts, when it records Peter, like Paul's like conversion story, that Paul gets the details wrong. I like, there's three accounts. I feel like all three of them should say the same details, even though that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I think, come on now. <laughs> yeah. Like, but it's, yeah, is like too much to ask for, you know, for, right. For, Can for, we just have some, some uniformity just, here? Just, just get a fact checker, right? Like we, we, you could pay for one of those people. Like you, you've got the money. Let's do that. Hire someone to do this, yeah. get all the facts straight. But I like, that's not, that's not what was offered to me. And the question for me was, do I let go of it all because it doesn't fit my expectations or do I receive what right. God has actually given me? Mm. And so I don't know if you, I saw one of my, uh, one of my friends, Austin Fisher. I don't know if you guys have had him on the podcast, uh, faith in the shadows. You probably no, should get him haven't. on. He'd be a good, he'd be a good guest, but, uh, he was getting a little, uh, Twitter beef with our friends at the gospel coalition. And they had, uh, they had said, these are three things that cause liberals or progressives, whatever term they use, uh, to destroy their faith. And, and one was like, they don't believe in scripture anymore to be, um, infallible. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, okay, like maybe that's not helpful, but for some of us you go, well, scripture clearly is fallible. Like it contradicts itself. <laughs> there are things that aren't right. One of the new Testament writers references like in the gospels references an old Testament prophet. And it's not even the prophet. Like they got the prophet's name wrong. Right. Like that's not like, that's not debatable. That's not negotiable. Like that's literally the wrong name. That, there's a right and wrong answer. It's the wrong answer. If, if I did that in a grad school class, I'd be like, yep, that you're, it's wrong. Like there's red next to that. And so for me, it's like, do I get rid of the Bible? Because it doesn't fit my 21st expectation, 21st century expectation for how it's supposed to work. Or can I receive that? This is a document that is life-giving, that is inspired, that is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, that has enriched and established faith for thousands of years, 2000 plus years. And I can join this great cloud of witnesses in receiving what it actually is instead of getting into this like hundred year old debate over infallibility, right? Like, sure. There's some beef that the Protestant church had with the Catholic church and the Catholic church said that the Pope is infallible when he speaks from, from the pulpit. Okay. And so now that the Protestant church wants to say, well, the Bible's infallible. And so, yeah, you want to make this, you know, intramural debate between the two of you a big deal. Great. But I'm not going to get jumped. Like, I'm not going to get sucked into this sort of like mud flinging thing that you guys are doing. Like, that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to make Makes my faith, and so I'm going to receive what I've been given. So then, why? I mean, if the Bible is is fallible, then like, why? What led you to to, to stick with it? Why not? Why not just go look for one that's not as fallible? Or, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think the whole language of is the Bible infallible? Right. Yes or no? Like that's a bad question. And if you ask the bad question, you're going to get a bad answer because if you say, is the Bible infallible? I say no. And so then your follow-up question is the right question to ask. Then you go, well, I guess that means the Bible is fallible if it's not infallible. Well, what if the question isn't, 
do those have to be the only two categories? Yeah. Like Come no on, one man. said like you're pulling me into a, a game. I'm going to lose every time. Right. Like I, I've got friends who are great athletes, but I, I, I've got a friend named Sonia who won four Olympic gold medals in the 400. She's the fastest woman in the history of the world, except for one German who in the 1980s was definitely on steroids. So she's <laughs> super fast. Right. And so if, if I like, if, if I text Sonia and say, Hey, let's go meet at the track. Let's go run around right. one time. I'm going to lose every time. Every time her husband, Aaron, two Super Bowl rings for the Giants. If I'm like, hey, let's go play football. I'm going to lose every time. But you know what I'm going to dominate in? Bible trivia. Like I will dominate both of them. The only thing that matters though. Come on, Luke. Yeah, every day of the week. So I'm not going to let Sonya or Ross drag me into something I'm going to lose at. And so Christians, we let ourselves get drugged into these terrible games Mm. that we're never going to win at. And we think, okay, if it's not infallible, that means it's it's useless. No, no, no. That's not how it works. Like for... For 2,000 years, this document has given faith and given inspiration and connected people to the infallible word of God, which is Jesus, according to John's gospel. And it's been, it's done that. It's enriched faith. So that's enough for me. I can receive it for what it is and be good with that, even if it's not how I would draw it up. But God never needed me to draw things up like this. It's been working fine without me, and it's been working fine without the tag of infallible or foul. Like, that's been around for 100 years. Like, that is 5% of the history of the church. It's nothing. It's not a big deal. Yeah. We don't need that title. You know, you know what I think is interesting is just how, how not worried it seems like the biblical authors are about that. Like, how, how quickly Paul is to play, play pretty fast and loose with stuff, right? I mean, he just, it, it, if he were writing a, a paper in seminary on half the stuff that he writes, He's uh, he's not going to pass. No, right. <laughs> but but he's he's doing what a first century rabbi would do. Right. He's doing midrash. He's he's fast and loose. Like that's I know Pete Enns uses that language a lot. I use it. Uh, it. It can come across like I'm being flippant when I say well, he's playing fast and loose with the Old Testament because that's what we expect an author should never do. Like I can't play fast and loose with a New York Times piece in my book and not get sued for it. Right. Like it's not going to work that way. <laughs> But that's normal for a rabbi to do that kind of stuff. That's normal in the Jewish religious culture for that to be the normal discourse. And so, yeah, I would do things different, but there's plenty of things they would do different because they're 2,000 years removed from like all the cancerous stuff around us. Like they would be like, hey, I'm going to be addicted to my cell phone like all you people are. They're not going to do that. They're going to be better off because of it. So, yeah, you're playing a losing game. Hmm. Hmm. So... In, in these conversations, I think naturally, uh, especially when it comes to the expectations of God, I mean, the elephant in the room becomes the you know, the problem of evil, right? Okay. So the, the classic way of framing it is, uh, you know, God is, there's, what, what, what are the, the, the four statements? It's like, you know, God is all loving, God is all good, God is all powerful, and evil is real. And only like three of those can be true. Um, yeah. You, you got to pick which one is false. Um, how, so how do you help people? who are really struggling with, uh, particularly in, in times of suffering, I think of, uh, you know, I mean, the cancer diagnosis or the unexpected death. I mean, these things were, were really, really huge, like foundational, uh, uh, foundations of faith get rocked uh, because of suffering. How do you help people uh, navigate that? How do you answer that question? Um, hmm. uh, so uh, back in July, our, our youngest daughter, Audrey, our four-year-old, um, was sick. Long story short, um, we ended up taking her into Dell Children's Hospital, and we ended up spending a couple nights on the oncology floor because they thought that our daughter had leukemia. 
And wow. very grateful that after three days in a bone marrow biopsy, we finally found out that our daughter doesn't have leukemia. Beyond grateful for that. Uh, but spending a couple nights on the oncology floor in a children's hospital is a very sobering thing. And in that moment, I was never thinking, well, you know, God, if you love me, you're going to make sure this doesn't happen. Like I, I know some people do. That's just where, not where I was. Right. And I fully validate that that's a question some people are going to ask. I think suffering brings up questions. It's always it, suffering has a way of bringing up those questions in a way that few, few other things can. Uh, because of my journey, because of my background, because of what I do professionally, like I've been in those rooms before. It's not my first time being with the sick kid in a hospital. It's not my first time being with someone who is facing tragedy. It's not my first time of, of seeing the harsh realities of life up close and personal. For me, my question was, am I alone in this? And in that moment, I felt that God was with me. And, and that's, I think, all, all we have to offer. I, I think the Bible just kind of sidesteps my question of, well, why is there suffering in the world? The Bible just says it is like it's there. Like, okay, there's a snake in the garden that's pulling you away from God's ideal. That's just there. Uh, there's hardship in the world. It's just there. That's 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 what we've been offered is a story that says it's there. But our response is not an answer to ameliorate all of these intellectual queries that we have. What we get is a story that says God steps into suffering with us. Is that that in the person of Jesus? God has stepped down into the oncology floors, that God has stepped down into the rooms where there is divorce being told of their kids. God has stepped down into the room in which someone just got fired. As uh, Eli Wiesel says, where is God in the Holocaust? God is on the gallows. Like That is the Judeo-Christian story, is that God is with us in suffering. And while I would prefer to have an answer, that's not what I've been offered. What I've been offered is a story. Do you Do you— when you imagine God there with you on the oncology floor, do you imagine him there as one who could actually fix all of this if he just pushed the button, but he decides not to, maybe for freedom or maybe for you know relationship? Or do you imagine him as, the, as there who could do it, but he doesn't because maybe there's some kind of a greater good that we don't really have the ability to, you know, to calculate? Or do you, do you imagine him there as one who just doesn't actually have the power to, to fix it, but he, he just, he's there to be with you? I, I believe in Jesus, we see that God sometimes steps into these moments and does the unexplainable. Like, I believe that's part of the, the Christian stories that like Jesus shows us that happens. And I believe that does happen. I also believe uh, a friend of mine who is uh, an OBGYN oncologist who works a lot with kids that she says often... Christianity can become a hindrance for people dealing with death because they put off reality. Mm-hmm. And I hold those two things in tension that sometimes our sort of, you know, name it, claim it, abusive pictures of healing that are somehow predicated upon like my own piety. Like if I have enough faith, then I'm going to get God to do so- like, as if God's like, you know, if you give me flowers then maybe I'll go out with you. Right. Like if, you know, if you say, if you sing me a song, then maybe I'll right. wash your car. Or like, like, is that God? Like that, that's not a beautiful picture of God. Uh, now I, I know there's stories in scripture that, you know, because of their faith that Jesus didn't heal. Like I, I know that's in there. And so I, like, I hold those things in tension. So I, I think healing uh, is the exception. I, I think it's out there, but for me, like I didn't think in those terms, like for me in my brief season of being uh, a visitor into the reality that some people deal with, 
uh, of the oncology floor. I, I was a visitor there for two days. So I, I don't think I'm the same as someone who's been going up for the last year to get chemo with their kid. I 100% don't think my experience correlates with that. But for my brief foray into that world, my thought, while much of it was clouded by shock and like just utter fatigue and, and surprise, um, I, I get all that. But my thinking was, I, th- I think God is with me in this and that mm. I, I think what I have is an invitation for God to be like this midwife. And what I probably wanted was an epidural where God's going to come in and give me the shot. And all of a sudden the pain's going to be gone. That's not what I don't think God is. I think this is Brene Brown. She says, I, I used to think of faith as this epidural, but now I start to see faith more as this midwife who gets in your ear and says, keep breathing. You can do this. Mm-hmm. Keep breathing. You can do this. And this is that daily bread stuff that Jesus says, when you pray, pray for your daily bread. And what I want, I don't want daily bread. I want a lifetime's worth of bread. I want to be like the Israelites with the manna, and I want to just stockpile it, every bit of it. And I want to be fully provided and taken care of for the rest of my life. But what what God gives me is, would you just pray for your daily bread? And I pray for one day at a time and one breath at a time and to keep on going. And then I think somehow the word of God, the bread of life, Jesus, appears and, and nourishes me enough to keep going for one more minute, one more day, one more hour. That's awesome. Luke, as we start to land as we start to land this, you're obviously a pastor, and so you're dealing with you know, you're not an academic writing about these things. you know, you're not mm-hmm. out in a, you know, meditating out in the woods alone day and night. You have three children, you're married, right? You're yeah. how does the how is this conversation and the realities of, you know, losing your expectations of God playing out in your immediate community? And what's your perspective as a you know, as a pastor of a of a good size church. Yeah, I think the, I think academics bring something to the table and I think that they help us with theology and history and understanding text. I think practitioners, um, are hopefully learning from the academics and doing a lot of the application of what does this really look like for, for day-to-day people in, in reality. Not that the academy is like this fictitious place. It really exists too. But and like, how is this fleshed out? So a lot of it is, it's like an iceberg. I think ministry is people see like the 10% and they're not going to understand the, like the 90% of the iceberg that actually resides under the water. And so I don't think everyone understands the, you know, the theological steps that I'm making. What they're looking for is how can you get me my daily bread to keep on going for one more day? Like, how can you connect me to that? And so some of the stuff that's under the surface it's probably never going to be seen. Uh, and, and so some people might not understand the difference of, uh, of someone with like where I'm coming from. So maybe from even maybe like a Calvinist friend of mine, like I, I think some of that's going to be under the surface and people might not pick it up, uh, in times of serious crisis when they do want to have serious questions answered. Yeah. That stuff probably is going to be a little bit prevalent, but, um, I, I think the reality of what we're trying to do here as, uh, as pastors is, you know, we're trying to help people keep on going. And, you know, my faith was really me trying to keep on going. And so I'm trying to just share the very thing that, that kept me going with other people. Yeah. That's encouraging, man. I, I think it's helpful to know that you, <laughs> to know the reality, which is you can be pastoring a church. Like there are people that are, are are the quote unquote, you know, faith leaders that are dealing with 
this as well that like it's a legitimate yeah. part and it's not you know just you know reserved for folks at the margins of the church that aren't really plugged in and don't haven't quite mustered yeah. up enough faith like there's a reality to it it sounds like even naming it stepping into it i love even the way you end the book like there's this this kind of stepping into this you talk about kind of this cruciform posture i mean just kind of being mm-hmm. willing to be christ centered through through that you know through this whole process is uh is the best place to be yeah, one of the things that was an unexpected byproduct is a positive reception of like parishioners to who appreciated hearing their pastor talk about their his struggles. I, I was kind of like having this vulnerability hangover of oh maybe they're not going to receive that well because you know pastors are supposed to play the certain role and they kind of like help buttress this whole like tent of faith that that people use to give them cover and protection in life and and it's gonna like if there's instability there then what does that do for their own faith um, but for me like I, I had conversations with um, there's uh, a group of people from our church who are doing this like book club through my book which is the right thing for everyone to do to create a book club Absolutely. about my book um, but like. Like that was literally the the reaction I got from from many people. Just it was just the other night, and they were saying it was so encouraging for me to know that I'm not the only one. Hmm. And I think that's what most of us want to know: is like, am I alone in this? Like, I I, I can't be the only one who's thinking this stuff. But sometimes we go into these sort of like dysfunctional circles that go, you're the only one. It's ne- no one else. You're on your own. You're by yourself. And hopefully, what I can communicate is at least for for this person, like me, Luke. I. I you're not different from me. Like many of us struggle with this. And honestly, I know there are a lot of pastors, a lot of people who are in leadership who have these same questions as I do. Uh, some talk about it more openly than others, but, but we're all trying to figure this stuff out together. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about the, in, in your book, you mentioned that the, the importance of spiritual practices mm-hmm. in, um, in, in maintaining a faith sort of through the transformation. Yeah. 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 So it's like, I've got a friend of mine who, uh, he's, he's got problems, but he does those like ultra marathons. Like, oh, I'm going to run a hundred miles or 50. Miles. Like that's my dad's a psychologist. We can diagnose this. That is some sort of issue that you need <laughs> 12 steps. You need a 12 step program for that. Seriously. Like that's bad. But I, I was talking with him about this. He was going through a tough time and like family stuff going on. And he said, there are times I don't feel like I want to pray. And I go, well, when you're training for a race, are there days that you don't want to go, go and get your 12 miles in? Are there days that you want to just mail it in and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to finish this race. So today I'm going to give up. I'm not going to train. And he goes, no, no, no. Like you have to train every day. And I think faith is the same thing. It's not like this intellectual idea that I'm just going to fill in the unknown crevices of my mind. Well, I can't figure this stuff out. So I'm just going to, uh, like, I don't have belief. No, belief is this way of life. And so even when you have the intellectual inconsistencies, even when, when you're personally in trauma, even when you're personally in crisis, that's when you need to have these things that you've created habitual patterns, habitual uh, times that you continue to go back to these practices so that they come out of you. Like, for example, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he prays, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. I'm I'm making some jumps here. So I don't know if this is 100% true, but it makes sense to me that Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, says, Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I wonder if Jesus has prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done enough so that in his moment of greatest trial, when he is squeezed, what comes out of him is not my will, but thy will be done. And so those Mm -hmm. practices come out in Jesus' time of greatest struggle. And I think that's, that's the redemptive grace of spiritual practices. Awesome. 
how do how do you understand how do you understand that um you know, engaging in these spiritual practices when you don't have the belief behind it. I mean, I, I could see where yeah. someone would say, well, look, I mean, aren't I just sort of just going through the motions? Are you saying I should just, you know, do stuff just because? Well, I, I, I think that's a fair question. I think that's a fair critique. And if, if you want to maintain your marriage and you feel like, you know, I really don't, I'm, I'm not happy right now. This isn't what I want. Um, you know, I, the grass is growing on the other side of the fence. Right. And you just go there and you stop putting the work into your marriage. Guess what? The grass on your side of the fence is going to dry up. It's going to be all brown. And actually the grass on the other side of the fence will be better because you've not put any right. work into water in your marriage. And so faith, if it's just intellectual ideas, then it is dishonest. Then you can use that line where you're just going through the motions. But faith has never been just your ideas. And so the idea of, well, you know, you're just going through the motions. No, 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 no. Like, that's faith is right. the motions, right? It is the motions. <laughs> it is the thoughts, all those things together. So you can't kind of, you can't look down upon the motions as though those are secondary to thoughts. And that's sort of like the intellectualization mm. of faith allows that sort of bifurcation of, well, it's just, it's, it's motions or it's beliefs. No, no, no. It's, it's all the same thing. You don't say, you know, you know what? You know, my left leg hurts, but it's all about my arms. And so I'm just going to let my left leg fall apart and I'm just going to, you know, there's a big cut on it. I'm not going to take care of it. It's going to be infected. But all that matters really are my arms. No, like it's your whole body. Every bit of it matters. So your motions, your thinking, all of it are the same thing. That's great. Luke, this is awesome. We could ask you many more questions, um, but thank you so much for, for carving out the time. Thanks for putting in the, the life work uh, and the sweat equity into into writing this book and into doing your podcast. And we just want to honor you, honestly. Like, Thank you for just opening our eyes to so many different ideas, authors, people, um, and really being in their inspiration even for this podcast, um, which we well, really appreciate. Thank you for your assistant. You should thank Jonathan sometime for us. Yes. Yes. yes you got the, yep. I appreciate <laughs> you getting that. I was going to try to get him on here and like razz on you. As a oh, like we have Luke on, little does he know Jonathan's waiting on the yeah. other line. It's a four way. Oh, that, that would be too funny. That would be too funny. Yes, no, uh, you guys assistant. are good. Like this lady podcast, you guys are onto something. Uh, so I like, I've done a few of these uh, other side of the microphone podcast and I like you, you guys, you guys have some podcasting chops in you. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad you guys are doing this and uh, I'm, I'm glad that I, in some small way inspired uh, and encourage you to do this because you guys, uh, you're, you're onto something here. So keep up the good work. And uh, it was an honor to talk with you. Thank you for making the time. And thank you for reading the book. You got People it. People used to say that like, oh my, hey, thanks for reading the book. Like, you actually read the book. Um, and I was like, well, doesn't everyone do that? Uh, no, everyone doesn't do that. <laughs> and so you guys did. So thank you uh, for, for reading and having um, a well thought out conversation. I respect that. Thank you. Well, thanks, Luke. Right. And we'll thank definitely you. recommend it to our to our listeners. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.